welcome to the Faculty Podcast, brought to you by Reformed Theological Seminary in Washington, D.C., part of a 50-plus year endeavor to train pastors and other church leaders in the ministry of the gospel in the United States and around the world. We've got a full house this morning, everyone. We've got Dr. Tommy Keene, Dr. Paul Jean, Dr. Gracie Tonto, Dr. Peter Lee, and myself, Scott Redd, president here of RTS D.C. And we're continuing on now in the third installment of our tough text series and uh we've talked uh if you've been listening at home you've heard our introduction to the series we talked about miracles in general a bunch of different texts in that case kind of handling it thematically and how do we think about miracles and now we're moving on to uh shall we say the great miracle right the miracle of creation the big one the big one um, so what we're going to be focusing on here, just to set the parameters of this discussion, because at the end of the day, we could talk for the rest of our lives about the uh, origination of the cosmos. But we're going to be focusing on how you interpret Genesis chapter one. OK, so we're going to talk about the different ways to interpret Genesis chapter one, the the issues that arise with each interpretation and um you know, what we as confessional, biblically informed Christians and pastors who are in a position of pastoral leadership, how we ought to approach these kinds of issues. Recognizing on the front end, there's all kinds of things one could say, and you have to ask yourself what's responsible to say, given the context and the people with whom we're serving. So we're focusing on Genesis 1. There's a lot of different creation stories in the Bible. We could look at Genesis 2. We could look at Psalm 104. We could look at a variety of different places where creation happens, but we're focusing on Genesis 1. Specifically, what constraints are put on our thinking about creation, what's opened up to us in how we think about creation in this six-day creation account that we find in Genesis 1. And we have to admit on the front end, the plain reading of it is that day one, such and such happens. Day two, such and such happens. Day three, such and such happens. That's how the text is told to us. So starting there, I want to hand it over to my colleague, Dr. Peter Lee, to walk us through um, the positions that are out there. We're going to discuss them. I think it'll become clear which positions we hold as a group here as well. But we want to give fair hearing to each of the positions. Alrighty, yeah, Genesis 1, it's uh, been a long time discussion and, uh, you know, since my time, our time, I think, since we've all uh, uh, were seminary students, even to this day, it's been uh, heatly debated um, within the context of the church. And you, you actually have a debate in your class on Genesis to Deuteronomy, don't you? That is you correct. You have the class debate the different positions. Instead of me just lecturing on Genesis 1 and giving the options, I just have the class do the work ahead of time bring in their data, and then we just talk about it openly. Just so they, the goal of that is to see that, yes, there are going to be different views. All can be considered orthodox, and there are legitimate theological and biblical grounds to hold to them. So we shouldn't demonize each other is sort of the goal. Scott, can we, can we do that in class when there's, like, controversial topics? We just let the students hash it out and let them do the work? <laughs> You're and... asking me. Of course we can. Oh, wow. As a matter of fact, I brought in a group of fellows who I was, I was teaching during that, uh, during that class, and we just, as we, we happened to be hitting Genesis 1 the same time you guys were, and so we just came in and participated in your That's debate, good. and many of them were said, said that, that was the most helpful 
class I had that semester was just walking through these issues with other it's, Christians. It's peers teaching peers. It's sort of the way you lecture your classes, you know. All right. Don't be mean. But somehow you're <laughs> able to Well, no, I, I was that was a compliment. How you're able to control the dialogue. I thought you were commenting on how young Tommy is that he's he's a peer <laughs> of his students. Uh, well, uh, no, well I mean, that that too. Smartest that, uh, 18 young year old at professor heart. at Washington. <laughs> he's young at heart. All right. Well, yeah, as you know, this has been discussed now at least uh, for the past uh, 30 years and even longer than that. And and with the varying different thoughts that have been shared out there, uh, the, the church more or less has now boiled it down to, I would say, three views that have been considered um, orthodox. And as long as you hold to one of these three views uh, within um, certain uh, parameters, you, would, you should be considered orthodox uh, in your view of creation, your view of Genesis 1, um, and live at peace with those who may hold to uh, the other two views. And you're citing, you know, like the OPC, your denomination has a white paper, a position paper on this where it delineates three views. The PCA delineates four views, and we can talk a little bit about why there's a difference uh, and if there's a difference uh, in some of those. Um, those are both available to anyone who's interested. You can just Google OPC position paper, creation report, and PCA creation report. Both are excellent resources, and I'd encourage anybody uh, who's interested in going deeper on this to go through. They actually walk through the positions that we're going to talk through here. Right. There's also a book by uh, David Hagopian Mm -hmm. called The Genesis Debate, where uh, he'll have uh, these three views, representatives to defend and articulate the view, respondents, and then the original presenter respond to the respondent and he'll do that with each of you. So it's a very thorough treatment uh, and in the dialogue. Okay, so what are the three views that are out there? The first is a very traditional, classical view. It, it's, for the sake of simplicity, I'll give a label, but uh, and that's just meant to kind of summarize the view. The first view is just a literal view, a literal interpretation of Genesis 1, that each day of creation mm. uh, um, is a literal 24-hour day that the uh, chronology is um, of creation is as you find it in Genesis 1. The order of creation is as you find it in Genesis 1, and it's a pretty straight read of Genesis 1. And those aren't, those aren't symbolic days. Those are literal right. days. Those have 24 hours in them. That's what Moses would have thought when he, sees, when he writes this or, and he's talking about it. He's saying, I'm talking about regular days, right. just like a right. day in his life. It even says morning and evening. It even kind of assumes the basic transition points between days. Right. These sound like natural days. And that's the one defense that uh, those who have held of you would say is that uh, it is the simplest reading of the text. This is how Moses understood it. This is how the ancient Israelites would have understood it. Um, and it's, I think I would, I think it's fair to say in my discussions of this over the years in my class, this has been still the majority view that's held uh, amongst our students. And for that reason, I would think it's also the majority view that's held within the context of the church in our day to day. So that's the first view. The second is what is referred to as a day age view, where it takes the days of the order of creation remains the same. The days, however, are not interpreted as literal 24-hour days, but they are considered an age, an eon, an unspecified uh, amount of time. Uh, for that reason, uh, we could be—usually the literal view is associated with the young earth. I don't know if it 
requires it to be connected to a young earth view per se, but the day age view most definitely has to conclude an old earth. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, so that's the day age view. The third view is called the uh, the framework view. It's a little harder to summarize uh, because it's more of a literary approach to Genesis one, as it sees uh, each di- uh, the six days of Genesis one as sort of literary frames, and that they are interacting in a kind of twofold schematic, so that days one through three um, are trying are describing um, realms, so to speak. So if you think of Genesis one two. It says that the earth was formless and empty. The framework view will say, therefore, the first thing that God has to do is give form to the earth and then fill the earth, mm-hmm. and that he is dealing with that in the, uh, in the uh, days of creation. So days one through three is dealing with a formlessness issue. He has given it form, and that's what you find in days one, two, and three. The, he forms day and night. Uh, in day two, he forms the waters above, waters below. In day three, he forms uh, the land, the dry land. In days four through six, he is now dealing with the emptiness issue um, from Genesis 1-2, and now he is filling each of those subsequent realms in sort of a schematic pattern. So day four, he fills the day and the night with the sun, moon, and the stars. Um, In day five, he is filling the waters above in day two with um, the birds of the sky, the fish of the waters. In day six, he is filling the land now with the animal life and, of course, the crowning jewel of creation being humanity made uh, in the image of God. All three views, I would say, still kind of climaxes to the Sabbath where the Lord is Mm -hmm. crowned, in a sense, coronated as a creator king. Um, And in that sense, there is that common denominator in in all three. So those are your three basic views. And on framework, the creation part culminates, as you mentioned, with humanity, the vice regent, who's then sent out to do the same thing, go form and fill the earth, uh, subdue nature and, 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 and multiply, which kind of puts a nice envelope closure right on that problem of tohu vabohu it's formless and void and now it's formed and filled right and we're sent out to be little vice creators okay obviously doing it in our ordinary way um okay so that's that's interesting now there there is another view that sometimes is delineated which is the analogical view right and which and to, to to give it its most basics, I've heard several different forms of the view that these days are on analogy. They're, they're, they're analogical days. They're not meant to be read as literary days. It coincides with, and some groups would say this is basically the framework view. It may be without some of the things that Meredith Klein would connect to the framework view. Yeah, I think that's right. Yeah. I mean, depending on how you articulate the analogical view, it, it sounds framework it could be kind of day age again, depending on how you articulate That's it. Right. At least it, the, what you're trying to affirm the yeah. sensibilities of it. So yeah. it is a a little tricky uh, to uh, narrow it down exactly uh, yeah. as a fourth view. But it, but uh, those who hold to it do swear that it is a legit fourth option. Well, can, so if we look at these, if we use the OPC delineation, we do the three views. Okay. I think we can say one is doing one thing and the two others are doing something else. And and tell me if you all agree with this, but there, there's a sense in which the day-age view is doing a different thing because it really is trying to respond to the findings of science and incorporate the findings of science 
while still basically sticking to the biblical structure of Genesis one. Whereas the other two views are not, that's not, they're not, science isn't setting the agenda for their position. Is that a fair distinction to make? I I think it's, I wonder if a day ager might, would put it that way, but Mm -hmm. I think it is a fair distinction is what I'm trying to do is see how these two without, maybe they would, they might object. We don't want science to, to lead the agenda. Right. But we want to be biblical, but we're trying to see how the biblical text taken, you know, in a, in a linear and descriptive fashion matches with the findings of science. Like geology and macrobiology. Right. And, and so you get, actually, it's right. interesting. I think the PCA report lists four, the four views with the analogical view. And then it has a sort of a bundle of views uh, d- that are just, you know, I think it calls it just miscellaneous views. And a mm-hmm. lot of them are actually variations of the day age view day age. as, yeah. as different theologians and scientists respond to the findings of science right. to kind of revise things, you know, as, as you go. Yeah. For the, I mean, for the record, the OP report does list more than the three, but the, those three are usually the big three. The big that, three. The ones that are most that are popular. I'm sure the PCA report re- lists more than the OPC report. <laughs> <laughs> I think that's true. But the point is these are views that reasonable Christians can dis- disagree on. Right. But so. in regards to the day-age view, and um, the, the way that I've heard it put is, um, is that you know, we do have two sources of revelation. Uh, in terms of general revelation, special revelation, mm-hmm. and that right. we shouldn't necessarily see them in conflict. Uh, for that reason, isn't it possible, though we believe in the primacy of Scripture in how we interpret general revelation, mm-hmm. is there ever a time when general revelation helps us to reassess our interpretation of special mm-hmm. revelations? Mm-hmm. And that's the question that they are asking, and what they are suggesting is that in this case, um, the uh, the exegesis, if I can put it that way, of general revelation is causing them to see that maybe we can interpret Genesis 1 in a way that there is not conflict. Yeah. Um, uh, and there are actually things like this. For example, um, I, I don't think this is necessarily controversial. For example, the flat earth view. Mm-hmm. We don't necessarily conclude... Um, um, you know, based on Scripture alone, it's you could see why you, people might conclude flat Earth, mm-hmm. but we know that's not true, not necessarily from Scripture, but from general revelation. And mm-hmm. so here, general revelation is informing our view of divine special revelation, but right. but it's only general revelation that's causing us to reanalyze this. And so, is that a similar thing that's going on here? The day agers would say, yeah, and that's the reason why. Yeah, they, and it's important. I mean, it's it's true that the, you know, the Bible describes things phenomenologically. You know, Ecclesiastes, I think we talked about this last time. You know, the sun rises and then sets and then pants to get back to where it's going to rise again. And uh, in Ecclesiastes 1, and yet we recognize that the Bible's not saying, therefore, this is how you have to view the world scientifically. That's a phenomenological, like, like we say, sunrise and sunset today. Uh that's a phenomenological description, and general revelation sheds light on it. Bible, the Bible doesn't tell us everything we need to know about every topic. You know, John Frame says the Bible gives us all of God's words that we need on any topic, which I think is a good is a good way of talking about sufficiency of Scripture. It's all of God's words on any given topic, but it doesn't mean that it's all the words that could be said on any given topic. One of my favorite Reformed theologians, Cusbertus Futius, um, the 17th century um, 
I think made a fumble because he actually argued that for you to be a genuine, um, reliable interpreter of scripture, you had to be a geocentricist with regard mm. to the universe. And so when heliocentricism came into view, and Heisbert Vandenbrink really brings this out with regard to Futius and, and, and some work that he's done on creation and science and, and theology, um, he showed that Hesbertus Futius resisted heliocentricism, and he argued that the earth must be at the center of the universe. So we have to be really careful, and we have to therefore conclude that there are at least some things that we take from mm -hmm. our study of nature sure. that informs our study of scripture and vice versa. Um, however, with that being said, I also want to add a qualification that scriptures does remain our norming norm. And, and my issue with the yeah, can you explain that too? general revelation versus special revelation idea to parallel the science versus scriptural interpretation idea is that I think this is a bit of a category mistake. Because general revelation is not actually about your knowledge of the world, but general revelation is actually about your knowledge of God through the world. So what we know about God um, through God's revelation and creation cannot conflict with what we know about God in God's revelation through the word of God, right? Mm -hmm. So general revelation is actually about how God is eternally existent. He has glory and we have fallen short of that glory per Romans 1. And so the heavens declared the glory of God. But I don't think um, general revelation includes within it the scientific data about the world itself. Because general revelation is about God and not actually about the world. So I, I try to be really careful with, with these categories because yeah. I don't want to elevate science to become the exegesis of right. another revelation of God about the world. Because I think the, the revelation of, of God about the world is actually from special revelation. But the world testifies about God, not about itself. It's not self-explanatory. That's so really good. Kuiper actually argues, you know, with regard to the sciences, humanity has to be active with regard to our study of the flowers, with regard to our study of the, of the earth, for instance. We have to be really active because the world does not declare itself self with, with clarity about itself. But in general revelation, there is a clarity to it and a sufficiency to it about God's self. So um, the word is still the norming norm or the, the final authority, let's just say, yeah. as a shorthand it's for a really, how we understand the world. It's a really helpful quote from, from Kuiper. I like that. I, I remember kind of like in my own personal journey, kind of going through high school, just loving science. This was the thing I nerded out on first. Uh, and it was, it, it was really a barrier. I mean, I, I grew up a Christian, and I remember being uh, really puzzled because evolution was taught you know, just as the truth in, in school. And, but I was surprised how often, you know, what I was being taught about evolution lined up with those days. Mm -hmm. And I kind of landed on something like a day age view just because I was trying to mesh these two things together, you know, as a, as a nerdy little high schooler. And, and I remember being told that, no, you can't do that. It's either science or scripture. Or scripture. Like it's one or the other. Yeah. And it wasn't until finding, well, uh, actually, yeah, it wasn't until finding Van Til as a, as a nerdy high schooler, now nerding out on theology. That's true nerdom. That's <laughs> true nerdom. The queen of nerdom. Nerds, yeah. uh, it, where I had this category of the, the, the authenticity, necessity of special and general mm -hmm. authority of general revelation, too, mm -hmm. and that kind of idea of no... It's not you're not mashing these things to, together as a kind of hybrid 
um, but nor are you isolating them into two kind of noetic realms. Rather, yeah. these two are contribute to the whole right. yeah. of and, what we know. And so the sciences, because they're empirical and because it's human beings studying the world, it's always going to be provisionary, right? By definition, if it's about empirical data, it's always provisional. But general revelation is not provisional. General revelation is leaving every person without excuse, right? So I think we need to disentangle the science endeavor from general revelation itself because it fortifies science That's good. as a kind of self-authenticating, yeah. clear, perspicuous reality that well, general revelation is. Yeah. On that point, I mean, this, so for me, as an Old Testament scholar, one of the problems that I have with the day-age view, and like you, Tommy, I think early on in life, growing up in a Christian family and a bit of a Christian subculture, that was the thing you got. I mean, that's what I learned about. This was like the intelligent design, early versions mm -hmm. of intelligent mm -hmm. design views. A lot of it was day age. Not all of it, but a lot of it was. Um, the issue that I would have just with this interpretation of Genesis 1, so I want to just keep the specifics mm -hmm. on that, is that it does introduce a little bit of this, what you could call like an Easter egg theology and what I mean by Easter egg is, you know, think about like a movie that like hides little references to other movies and we call it an Easter egg or video games do this too. And that sort of thing. You can find something secret that's kind of hidden away. It would seem to me that the day age view necessitates that you believe that Moses was writing about things he didn't understand. And they were little Easter eggs hidden away for us in the scientific yeah. era to discover. And I don't think we biblical prophecy and inspiration works that way. Right. Yeah. I'd actually argue that it never works that way. Right. I agree. <laughs> There's only one story I can actually think of. So let me refute myself. There is the case of the high priest saying uh, a prophecy, right, without knowing he's saying a prophecy. But I even think we have to, you know, other than that, and even in that case, it seems like it's an ironic yeah, prophecy a, that's happening. Yeah. We're, we're in on the joke that the gospel writer is telling us, okay? Um, just as an aside, so I have to, you know, Give, give the, the to be sure sort of part of my argument. But I think prophecy never works that way. I think the prophets, if you had asked Moses, what are you talking about? He would have been able to say what he was talking about. He wouldn't have said, well, you guys aren't ready for it yet because science hasn't happened or something. And that's you the know, part that I have. That's the problem that I have with the day age view. It, it, I think it does make a hermeneutical error. Ordinarily, we should hold that the words of Scripture, while relevant and meaningful to us, and maybe... Yeah. in a census planora kind of way, in a fuller meaning kind of way. Nevertheless, we can't sever the text from the original audience, and I think the day age view does that. The yeah. Different kinds of interpretations of Revelation do that, different right. types of interpretations. If, if I have to have science to understand it, then I've kind of severed it. Modern science, then I've kind of severed it from its original audience. Mm -hmm. I also think most You've taken, scientists... You've also taken away the organic inspiration part of it, the organic right. part exactly. of the inspiration. Yeah. I, I also think the day-age view is probably not satisfying to most scientists that yeah, don't fair. already accept inerrancy of Scripture. Yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah. I think another text that is important in this debate is Hebrews 11.3. By faith we know that the, word, the world was brought forth by the Word of God. And so the things that are seen came from things that are invisible. And this is a, I would suggest, a prolegomenal sort of text with regard to Genesis 1. In other words, with regard to creation, we can't actually establish any firm knowledge about creation unless it were from revelation. And I think this is a, a, a cap for our scientific That's endeavors. That's really good. And you actually see this with regard to, again, the provisional character of science. There's always going to be changes. Even if you're an old earth person, you know, how old the earth is, is always changing. It's always getting older. 
Um, sometimes it's being revised, right? And then and and so what we see from from the creational account and also the whole of the scriptural account is that it is revelation that gives you knowledge about creation. And there's so many things that actually I think confirms that because we can't assume that the time that we're living in here today that is going to be analogous to the time of many thousand years ago or many million years ago. We don't know whether or not time flows in the same speed, for instance. Right. There's just so many things that we have to take for granted to assume that we know what happened in creation. I think there's an important kind of pastoral didactic point here as we're you know, just as we're kind of rounding out the importance of science, general revelation as a, as a knowledge source is that we, I don't know how to put Christians don't need to be weird about this. Mm-hmm. I mean, I remember um, my my daughter loves, 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 loves tigers still to this day. But uh, early on, I mean, she could tell you tiger facts until you were blue in the face. Um, and we <laughs> gave her this science book, and it has this section on tigers and how tigers before the fall have flat teeth and they chew the cud and their oh. bodies are t- – and she's like w- – what is this? Because it's not that the book, I know what's going on, right? There's no death before the fall, so there's no carnivores before the fall, so tigers have wow. to have, you know, flat teeth. So I know what's what's going on, and it's it's fine. Like, I think it's, I don't agree with it, but I think that what the book's trying to do, I get it. But they need to be transparent about what's happening here, that they, they're presenting this as if it's a scientific fact, when it's an inference from biblical data. When it's yeah. an inference from biblical data. And right. we just need to be, if you're going to do that, be transparent about it. Yeah. T- tell people that there's a debate because you don't want your kids or whoever you're talking to to get into a situation where they're in this conversation and they're, they're, they've been taught something without knowing yeah. that this is controversial or strange or yeah. where it's coming from. Right. Yeah. And good, well-meaning theologians disagree on those particular points, right? So Vern Poitras, who I had at seminary at Westminster, argued that there was death before the fall, at least mm-hmm. animal death. Why? Because there's passages in the Psalms, for instance, where it says that God gives the lion its prey. Mm-hmm. First right? Corinthians 15, Adam was part of a perishable... Perishable... Yeah, the perishable the, creation. Body, right, yeah, yeah, yeah. a mutable yeah. body, perishable body. Yep. And so uh, there was all this mutable life before the fall. And so it's not as if only one particular interpretation on these matters right. is the orthodox view. Having that said, there are parameters, you know, to use Plantinga's line, you know, you have to identify where the conflict really lies. And I think it's the whole Bible informing you. Mm-hmm. So I think a clear parameter would be the historical Adam. Right. Because Paul returns to it. Jesus uses it to talk about marriage, for instance, the existence mm-hmm. of Adam and Eve. First Corinthians 15, you already mentioned Romans 5, 12 to 18, 12 to 21. Is, is incredibly key yeah. on Adam and how human guilt and human alienation before God comes from the first sin of Adam. So we have to talk about the fall as a historical reality, but you know how old the earth is, for instance, and whether there was animal death before the fall. I do think there's more room for debate for these and, matters. And, tr- and that's a good transition point because Adam is cited historically as the source of historically literal things like right. marriage and the fall right and the need for a second or last atom and then right. you know all, all of right. these things so so that's that's why that's important and it maybe that's a good segue to another view because i think we've done a good job on day age and uh we've got two more important views to get through so let's transition then to the six twenty-four hour day view okay it, 
maybe the first thing to say is that it's not it's not the only possible reading, right? I mean, it, it makes sense. I think it's a clear reading. <laughs> is that the first thing? <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I just have to bring this to the fore because Augustine, again, uh, he's yeah. the yeah. typical paradigmatic yeah. example. Yeah. Um, um, would argue that actually, appropriately speaking, literally speaking, he says in the literary um, reading of Genesis, he says that, that God, it is more fitting for God to create everything in one swoop. Yeah. There's a simultaneous creation. And Augustine's view is going to be echoed later on by Hermann Bavinck, who argues that um, it might possibly well be a simultaneous creation, but we can't possibly know. And that the first three days would have been very different in character, at least from day four, because the luminaries were only created in day four. Yeah. So um, I'm not saying that, therefore, their view is right, just because, you, you know, I, I joke in class, yeah. if Augustine's in your camp, then you're probably in the right. Um, but um, it is at least a couple of very strong precedents for the older physician. Yeah, it's funny. This was the thing I was, I, I, I guess we're in, I'm, I'm doing like personal counseling now about my childhood. But this was another thing that came up was no one before Darwin Mm -hmm. suggested anything other than six yeah. 24-hour days. And actually, that's I, I, flatly I, I've not even true. heard that from adults in yeah. recent years. Yeah. The only reason people say these things is because of Darwin evolution, yeah. the, these other views other than six 24-hour right. days. And that's not the case. And to be fair, Augustine yeah. probably believed in some form of a young earth, yeah. but that the but that this young earth was created simultaneously, not within a succession of six days, well, or at least an early human history. And even in confessional, I mean, in, in, in the language of 24-hour days exists and is used to articulate views, particularly against Augustine in mm -hmm. Christian tradition. People will use the language of 24-hour days. And it's interesting that even in like in Westminster, they don't they choose not to use the language of 24 hour days. They use this ambiguous language, which mis mixes spatial and temporal categories, the space of six days, which mm -hmm. some people argue like they're they're being a they're, they're being a compromised document. They're, they're not compromised, but a compromised document. They're bringing in different views, different views and including the Augustinian view and views like it in the position by saying it that way, the space of six days. Now, I know some people argue, no, that's not the case, but it is notable that the language of six 24-hour days was, was language that was known to the members and right. the attendees of Westminster. So I think it shows that there is, an, that there is a, a diversity in history. Yeah. And I think we have to point, there is a, there's a sociological reality that the six 24-hour days view really did take off in the last 150 or so years in the West. And there's been books written on this, you know, about the creation, the, the, the six 24 hour day sort of creation movement. That's a, that's a sociological reality that that yeah. became the sort of uh, a litmus yeah. test for faithfulness amongst some in the Christian church. And, um, you know, you can't deny that now that's not a, that's not a defeater to the position. No. So let's talk about why the position we, we've critiqued the position. Well, let's talk about why the position might be a, might, might be the right position. Well, say one more thing. <laughs> okay. right? so it's, one more it's, critique. Okay. Uh, it's, it's that, you know, arguably the fixation on creation being being that it must be this way is, is, you know, we've heard the argument perhaps that they followed through with the enlightenment's emphasis on empirical epistemology mm -hmm. and the scientific exactness of knowledge. That therefore, if scripture is the word of God, it must have the same sort of properties as a modern scientific textbook. Uh, I think, I'm not saying everyone who holds this view holds that particular position, but I do think that's probably 
interpreting the Bible in light of modern expectations. Yeah. And, and arguably, you're actually parroting yeah. the Enlightenment epistemology in your reading yeah. of Scripture. Yeah. Um, but, okay, to defend it, I do think that there are features in the text where if you're going to just read it, um, especially in Genesis 1, on a first sort of immediate reading basis, there's morning and then there's evening, yeah. right? I'm not sure how that works with regard to the luminaries only being created. Doesn't seem four. to be talking about like a, like the day of in Solomon's day or something like that. It's talking right. about there was morning and evening. Yeah, right. Yeah, the day of the Lord. Fair enough is a long multi-day period of time. Yeah, but this is one that's marked by the sun going down and the sun coming up and the sun going down. Yeah. So there's that. That's or at least morning and evening without the sun. Yeah. We're not sure. Yeah. Uh, I mean, the argument about the fourth day being when the illuminaries are created, I actually think the pushback of, well, reality is not defined by our phenomenological categories. This is this is God's telling us and there's light what and you need to know. There's light and dark. It's 24 right. hours. Uh, you can doubt God on that because he didn't have a sun to measure it by. But um, we're talking but, about he, he is the arbiter of truth. Not, not you, yeah. There Greg, is that inference, you though. There is that inference. <laughs> 24 hours. Well, there's light and dark is one thing, but 24 hours in the morning and evening, that's another thing. Well, there and is and an the argument yeah. back is that what is an hour yeah. other than a measurement of the sun, of the moon, the earth rotating vis-a-vis the sun. It, it yeah. does raise the issue, though, t- for me, that there's no non-metaphorical interpretation of Genesis 1. The, the 24-hour day version has to have a non-literal right. view of what morning and evening constitute. Yeah. Then, then our at least a different one, view for days one through three. For days one through yeah. three. Well, one argument that um, that I've always found very uh, sound to 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 defend the literal view has always been from uh, the Sabbath commandment in Genesis yeah. uh, in Exodus chapter twenty that uh, you are to honor Sabbath, keep Sabbath, and that's um, a literal twenty four hour day Sabbath, right? Because it patterns the creation week of of uh, Genesis 1 and and that seems to you know there, there's a question of well, just um, you know how much um, it presumes that the only way that the Sabbath command works is if you read a pretty straightforward we there is a beauty to this as well I've actually interpreted at times that maybe what Moses is doing in in Exodus 20 is a is is a almost proto um, um, unionite type of idea. The, the picture that you have of God there in His work of creation is parallel, is mimicked then by man as sort of your agri- agriculturalist who is working. Mm-hmm. And there is a sort of a reflection of what God is doing in creation. You are doing here on Earth, and there is something really special about that idea uh, of God's work in creation. Your work here on Earth uh, that. Um, that really is sort of preserved a little bit more when you read uh, Genesis 1, a little more straightforward. And to, I mean, if you, you, you historical Adam types, if you think That's that, all of us. Yeah. That's right. <laughs> clear. That's right. To be clear. That's, 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 that's not a subset. That's, that's not the a royal part of the genitive. That's the royal us. Uh, we have to acknowledge if our argument is that Jesus has to literally die on the cross because Adam historically literally sinned then that raises a question. If you believe in a literal six-day work week with a Sabbath, why isn't, your, why isn't the ontology behind that a literal ontology? It's a historical work week, six days, 24-hour days with yeah. a seventh-day Sabbath. Yeah, I find that very persuasive and very helpful. Little footnote on the Sabbath, mm. because I think it's interesting that Hebrews 4, right? It is a, a Sabbath rest, 
So a, a, a Sunday rest, a Saturday rest that we are celebrating is a picture of yes, eternal God. rest, mm. the eschatological rest, which is the rest which God rested on 24. the seventh day. Yeah. It's not 24 hours. It's not 24 hours. Okay, and, it, and it's taking more of a, you know, not temporal sense there. It's almost spatial, the Sabbath, and in, in that interpretation. Mm-hmm. I agree. The uh, But there is still, you know, I, I do find that sort of special. An, an mm. Israelite person who's hearing this, I'm going to do my work six yeah. days. I'm going to rest. This Absolutely. Is, this, is, this is mirroring what God is doing. There's yeah. some, again, there's sort of that mirroring. Again, maybe union's too strong a way of putting it, but... Uh, there, there is this, and even the verbs there to describe God's work of creation is not the, you know, bara in Genesis one. In fact, it doesn't occur again in Genesis one. Outside of Genesis one, verse one, the rest of the words are like, you know, asa, do, make, standard stuff, and things of that nature. And uh, so, there, there it, I do find that you know, kind of nice, kind of mm-hmm. very, very meaningful. So actually, that view. That the work week and the Sabbath, or a literal work week and Sabbath, has to have a literal. It has to be based on a literal ontology and not a literary ontology. Ontology, I should say, is the probably the best argument for me on this on the six twenty four hour day views. I don't think it's that it's the plain reading, and that's actually where I'll kind of end up. But but it's interesting. Six twenty four hour day folks and framework folks both feel like their view is the plain reading. Yeah. Um, so when we get to that, I'll kind of hold that. I, I've fallen out on that other side. However, I do think that's a strong argument that I that I don't completely have an answer to. Is that I, it, it, Other than it's something like what you said, that in the beginning, the first Sabbath and the last Sabbath are not 24-hour days, so why would you expect? It's okay then to expect that the, tw- that the, the kind of typological Sabbaths that we yeah. observe today are limited by time and space, but the first Sabbath doesn't have an ending. And, but the, the, and the last Sabbath is forever and ever. You know, with that footnote on the Sabbath, and, and the first Sabbath is the last Sabbath. Right. But yet with that like footnote on the Sabbath, I do think you're right. The ordinary expectation hermeneutically is that the figurative is grounded in the literal, not the other way around. Yeah. The reason why there's a new exodus is because mm-hmm. there was a... Actual literal exodus, and that, yes. it, that that then literal historical event typologically mm-hmm. frames the spiritual reality. I think that's the ordinary right. expectation, and that so that's very persuasive to me with the six twenty-four hour days. And the other thing I, that you know, I commented to you in the hallway that I'm sort of more well disposed to it than I've ever been, and mm-hmm. and it's actually on a scientific grounds. Is that you know, I, I'm just an amateur. You know, but I do still love science. I still love mm. reading physics and um, st- stuff about stars and space and all that kind of stuff. And um, it's been a big couple of months then. You got the web, yeah, it has web been. photos it's coming right, in. That's you know, right. The web I mean, telescope. The James Webb telescope's awesome. But uh, so I still kind of dabble, and you know, it's interesting to me that there's just the more we learn about. Like, no one agrees about how the universe is created anymore. Like, there's mm-hmm. just not a consensus, right. mm-hmm. even on things like the Big Bang. And, you know, Gray mentioned earlier the speed of light and the expansion of the universe seems to be moving faster than the speed of light. And yeah. that's something that, you know, creationists were positing as a solution yeah. a decade ago that everyone laughed at. I mean, it's just, it feels very much in the air. And some something that is just very normal is that if you are a God, if you are God and you're able to create something out of nothing, you would create, you, you do create it with age. We all mm-hmm. hold to historical Adam. We believe that the historical Adam was created as 
a man capable of made. capable yep. of children, which means that he has gone th- through puberty, but he hasn't gone through puberty. No, you know if if he if he's made as a twenty as an eighteen year old man. Yeah. So like being able to create something as if it has aged should be biblically acceptable to me. Right. Yeah, the God the God that the Bible describes and purports to be the words of right is describing a God uh, is is a God who could have done all of this. So, I, so, so it has, yeah. it has nothing to do with the ability of God to do yep. it. So I and can, not only that, if if a scientist were to show up the day after, it would look like this it might look like this universe has been around for a long time. That's that's exactly right. So he could create a 2000-year-old universe that looks like it's 15.5 billion years old and there's no deception why because he told me no this is how i did it yeah so exactly. I, I i don't hold to that view but i do find it yeah and, more and reasonable as an aside i hear friends of mine who don't hold this view say well what why would god be deceptive that way and i would say he's not he's not being deceptive he's, he's developing a rich wonderful creation yeah. <laughs> and it's rich and wonderful and he told us how he did it Right. That would be the argument. Yeah. And dinosaurs are cool. Yep. Or at least they would have been if they had walked the earth. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. (laughs) All right. So now we end up with our framework slash analogical view. Um, Let's let's focus on the framework view to keep it clean. Yep. I think the first thing to say about that is that it's actually compatible with the young earth view, isn't it? (laughs) That's true. That's true. It's compatible yeah. with the young earth view. That's, that's not true. where I you thought you be, were going, but that's very true. You can have a framework view mm-hmm. and still believe in a young earth view. Right? So in, in the argument, and just to be clear about it, the, the framework view, and, and I, I, I'm not saying this is against the, the six-day view, because I know the six-day view, people would say the same thing. The framework view is the view that is drawn out of exegeting Genesis 1. It's not sitting there trying to shoehorn Genesis 1 yep. to fit in with modern theories of of the history of the universe it's looking at genesis 1 and saying how is genesis 1 work and what's the structure of it and as you laid it out is really good it's around this this twofold purpose that tells us up front what it's going to be about the earth is formless and void right this is how he filled it and this is how he formed it and generally the um because they see this as literary frameworks you, Mm -hmm. you see the and I've heard framework guys say this, and I know they didn't mean it the way it comes across. They say that for that reason, I don't read Genesis 1 as historical. But by that, what they mean is that they don't believe that the way and the order in which God created is what you find in Genesis 1. Mm-hmm. They believe in a historical creation. That No one, or, it, it, no one with an orthodox doctrine of creation would deny that. Yeah. So when they say that they don't believe in the historist, they don't believe that Genesis 1 is historical, that's what they mean, is that the way in which God created does not necessarily have to be the order that you have uh, in Genesis 1. Now, um, because again, it's more of a literary viewpoint than an, an actual chronological sequential one. So the um, for that reason, and this is part of the reason why I think uh, those who hold to the framework view have been criticized, and perhaps they need to clean up their language here, truthfully, is that um, those who hold to literary analyses, as you know, have been just generally considered then as not historical in terms of just in, in, in general approaches to Old Testament studies. So if you believe in a narrative in Old Testament uh, uh, a text, 
that means it's way too literary. It, it, life doesn't work that way, so you deny historicity. Mm-hmm. Uh, if you and and that's not true. I don't think the two naturally have to. You know, narrativity does not mean non-historical. Right. So any literary analysis has been coupled now as an overreaction as now denying historicity. Yeah. And because of that, if you hold to a literary view of Genesis 1 framework, you do have to affirm historical creation and just nuance what exactly you mean when you say not historical. Mm-hmm. What you mean is that, you know, it doesn't have to be the order that we have here in Genesis 1. Day 1... Uh, the way the steps that God took in creation doesn't have to follow the sequence that we have there right. uh, in Genesis 1. And thus, th- another principle's in play, in other yeah. words. And uh, so how does it fit, then? How does it provide a natural reading? And I would argue it fits with that structure you just said. It does other things, too, though, like it helps us understand Genesis 2, which seems to go back and cover some of the ground of Genesis 1, but in a really different way, you know. In Genesis 1, God is speaking vegetation in existence. In in, in Genesis 2, uh, there's no bushes in the field because Mm -hmm. it hadn't yet rained. You're like, well, wait a minute. That's a totally different dynamic. One is things being spoken into existence. The other one is like naturalistic scientific processes. You know, man is made... And out of out of mud, and then woman is taken out of man. It, it it's it begs this kind of like how do you put these two together? Could I say that all of those happened on the sixth day, and it's just kind of giving you some details about that six twenty four hour day period? That's possible, but I also don't think that's a, a natural. Adam reading. did a, a whole worldwide search of all of the animals that God had made and determined and then, yeah, in a day, at least twenty three hours, and then he met Eve. <laughs> in the 24th or something like that. Mm. It's begging a lot of questions. It also, I think the six twenty-four hour day view um, isn't so satisfying because it seems like Moses is trying to answer uh, this particular question about timing and speed in a way or, or rate of creation and not answering the question that I think actually Moses would be interested in, which is we talk about Yom, the sea god. Wait, we talk about Yom in Genesis 1, but guess what? He's no god. He's just a tool of the Lord. You know, we, we talk about the depths. We talk about the void. You know, but guess what? That's not a God. It's just a tool that God works with. You know, there's not multiple gods. There's not a pantheon of gods ruling the universe who are indistinct right. from creation. But it's Adonai who is creator, who is distinct from all other things. He's of a different type. And this is an apologetic against common polytheistic beliefs of Moses day yeah. and that just makes a whole lot of sense. And there's there's it's a polemic. Just, yeah. There's just no creation story like it. I mean yeah. it's the most non dramatic creation story ever written. Yeah, right. Yeah. There's it's not a battle of gods and one, right, one carcass important. becomes the ground for the Which for is the world. important to establish the the sheer dominion and sovereignty of God. And it that ends, he did I mean, it what a beautiful thing. It ends in rest, right? I mean it ends with the world at right at peace. Yeah. So, you know, the uh, the way that framework, uh, the framework view um, holds itself, defends itself is to cite from Genesis 2, 5, what you were just alluding to, Scott, mm-hmm. that um, that there was no vegetation on the earth because it hadn't rained and God did not provide a an agriculturalist Adam. Mm-hmm. In other words, it's natural processes in play yeah. here not supernatural uh, sustaining of creation. If you read Genesis 1 sequentially, then you have to account for supernatural sustaining of creation. Um, 
and the, the framework view will say, no, you see, that's why we don't read this as a sequence. We read this as a literary schematic because of Genesis 2.5 that says uh, that creation here is being sustained by ordinary providence. There's mm-hmm. no vegetation because there wasn't any rain. There was no vegetation because there was no farmer to to uh, work the field. And mm-hmm. once it rains and Adam is there working the field, then you're going to have, again, just natural processes. Yeah. Meredith Klein's our article, Because It Had Not Yet Rained, one of the best things out there on this topic. I was mm-hmm. also thinking of uh, our teacher, Mark Vitaldo's yeah. book, uh, article, which is supporting that yeah. and entitled... Um, uh, because it had rained. No, because it had rained. Because it had rained. Yeah, <laughs> I love the mundane as the title. Because it yeah. not yet had rained or something. You know, Meredith <laughs> Klein just titled yeah. his article that way. I think that it's a, there's a note there of the argument is we're using the word literary, and that's true. It is you know this this mm. hymnic yeah. kind of form. It has a literary form that supports all of those conclusions. But the questions that generate the view are exegetical questions. Right. They're, they're, they're questions that the text itself raises. Is how, how do we have morning and evening without luminaries? How do we have vegetation without rain? And the text actually mentions these things, particularly like the Genesis 2 account, I think, mm-hmm. where, we, where we're focused in on Adam and Eve. We, we, we're given these multiple perspectives, and so the text itself raises those questions of how, how did this Absolutely. happen. Absolutely. And one, as an aside, I've heard prominent pastors say, well, Genesis 1 is poetry, so it's not meant to be read literally. That's, that's not true. That's not I just want to be really yeah. clear. This is not, it's not poetry. It's clearly narrative. It's clearly prose. And it still can be stylized. Something doesn't have to be in verse for it to be non-literal. Mm-hmm. Secondarily, we're not saying that it's not historical. Mm-hmm. We're saying that it's not historical maybe in the scientific or uh, notarial historical sense, you know, uh, that a journalist might write the account or something like that. But it's still historical. It's telling us about the orderly creation of God. You know, so just to be clear on, on those points, too, I don't, I, I, I tell my students this, too, don't walk around telling people Genesis 1 is poetry, and so you don't have to take it seriously, which is how oftentimes that's heard. You know, actually, the exact opposite is the case. Um, we should take it very seriously. But take it seriously in terms of what it means and intends to say. Let's not bring in uh, outside uh, agendas to it. Yeah, amen. There is a, um, you know, I think what I have been uh, uh, disappointed in, in one uh, agenda that I've had uh, over the years in these Genesis 1 discussions has been to redeem God, the praise of God as creator, and that sort of is what has been lost in the discussions because they've been so heated. And now the idea of praising God because he is creator is just not done. Um, we don't do that, uh, even though there are psalms that praise God as creator. Uh, Paul, the Apostle Paul, praises God as creator in, in countless places in his, in his epistles, Colossians 1, Colossians 2. Um, I think of Job, you know, when he mm-hmm. stood before God, he he wanted an audience before God, and yeah. God gave it to him. And um, and God, uh, seeing this brash, audacious Job, needed to humble him and silence him. And the place that he took him to was creation, yeah. to tell him how little he understands about uh, God as Creator and what He, uh, and the the vastness of His power as Creator. Um, 
that seems to me a, a good posture that we need to have when we talk about creation is how little we do know while at the same time acknowledge and praise him for, we, for what we do know. We know that he created from nothing. We know that he created us in the image of God. We know that he created a historical Adam. And we know that he created Adam in the context of a covenant of works. There are non-negotiables. I think there are things that we have to say we can't sacrifice. Uh, we have to hold to as a solid orthodox view of creation. But there's a lot we don't know. Yeah. And if, if by fighting over and debating um, things that are more peripheral, and by doing that we have sacrificed God as creator and praising God as creator, that seems way too high price to pay. Mm -hmm. And that's sort of one thing I guess I've always wanted to see and tried to do in these dialogues is to just restore, renew, revive, retrieve, if I can put it that way. That's right. Yeah. You know, the the praise of God as creator king mm -hmm. and and to worship him and, and see that he's worthy of worship uh, of uh, uh, because he is, in fact, our creator. That's right. Yeah, there is a creator. Right. He made the world in an orderly fashion in which he had utter dominance and agency, and then he created us where not our existence is not a meaningless, arbitrary existence, but is founded in the person and the being of creator and that we bear his image. And th those are life-changing realities, right? It's one of those things that I think you're right as we're talking about this with people who are struggling with their faith. I, I you know, particularly if this is, if, if you're someone who says, you know, I, I'd, I'd love to believe the faith of the Bible, but Genesis 1 is just too big. I, I'd say, you know, set that aside for a while. Come and, you know, come to Jesus, right? <laughs> uh, come to him, put, set your eyes on him, and let's see down the road how you're thinking and your approach to these issues and your understanding as you talk to more Christians and you hear how Christians deal with texts like this. Let's see how that, how that makes, you know, how that gets uh, settled maybe and brings you to a place of cognitive rest down the road. Um, these are secondary issues. They're not primary issues. That's not to say they're not important. They're deeply important. And yet I think what our job is, going back to the preachers and the teachers, is to say, hey, he, here's a couple of different ways we have done, done it. We've approached it as Christians. This is where I end up. This is where I fall out on it. And yet there, there's a variety of different ways that you can come at some of these different passages. The fact that we don't all agree on the answer doesn't mean that there's not an answer, right? That, that's, that's confusing. Uh, you know, that, that's confusing subjects, as, as it were. Um, there's a lot of issues, and we should expect that in God's Word and in our understanding of creation that there's going to be a lot of things that we don't completely understand, and that doesn't mean there's not an answer to those things, to those questions. Paul, why don't you close us out with words of wisdom? Well, no, I have none to offer, but uh, <laughs> <laughs> I no, I do really like the way uh, Peter put it because um, the way I've thought through a lot of this and help our church members to think through it is there's so much we just don't know, as you know, we know from the Job text, but that doesn't mean there's nothing we don't know either. And part of um, working through this is identifying the non-negotiables, like Peter outlined, you know, and making sure that our reflections do lead to, you know, worship. Um, so I, I, I found that to be actually very helpful. Um, and the other thing is I, I encourage people not to necessarily think, oh, there's like a contradiction between Genesis 1 and 2, and therefore it must not be true. But instead, if we sense a contradiction, the error is probably in the way we're thinking through it. So 
like this this discussion was so helpful because it helps us just to reconsider our like presuppositions or our you know uh, frameworks as we think through uh, Genesis one and so. Yeah, I appreciated the discussion. I think it's a good pastoral approach mm. in terms of helping people figure out Genesis 1. Mm. And the end result should be worship. That's what it was for the Israelites who heard it, and that's what it should be for us as well. Thanks, brothers, for having this conversation. Um, uh, hopefully, for those listening at home, we didn't just raise a whole lot of new questions, but we actually gave you a little bit of uh, settling on, on the topic. Um, there's a whole lot more that can be said about it, but uh, we're limited to these episodes. Um, if in questions and in comments, you all uh, want us to talk a little bit more about any specific issues, feel free to post those questions. There's going to be a link in the show notes and you can pose a question to us for future episodes. We do want to hear what you think. Otherwise, we're just going to be going off our own conversations with people who are raising tough text. Uh, topics that we need to address. So go ahead and post questions on the link. Uh, If you're interested in knowing more about RTS Washington, go ahead and go to rts.edu forward slash Washington. We'd love to have that conversation with you. And uh, if you're thinking about classes for next semester, registration's going to open up in about a month or so. And uh, keep an eye out on what classes we're going to be offering and go ahead and plan to enroll. So we look forward to seeing you around campus. And until next week, take care. What do you think? What's your, what's your view? Paul, it's great to have you here. Paul's waiting. He's what's waiting for the Paul? right. He's waiting for the right view. Uh, when we were, I can't. I'm, the flow is very good. You guys are doing a good job. <laughs> so, no, I, I, I hold lean, to a lot of. Lean in, lean in, lean into the mic. What, what, what exactly, Paul? Wow. <laughs> you need the bosses. <laughs> great. Basically, what you said. I, I subscribe to what you said. <laughs> Paul, holds, I Paul say. holds to whatever Gray says. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Which we don't take personally. Yeah, so the, rest <laughs> the, the rest of us in the room. The rest of us.